Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin on this Memorial Day and speak with an Army veteran whose grandfather was a hero of World War II, Lieutenant General Lucien Truscott, Jr., who gave a eulogy on Memorial Day in 1945 at the graves of 20,000 American soldiers who died liberating Italy from the Nazis. According to Bill Malden, quote, The general's remarks were brief and extemporaneous. He apologized to the dead men for their presence here. He said everybody tells leaders it is not their fault that men get killed in war, but that every leader knows in his heart this is not altogether true. He said he hoped anybody here through any mistake of his would forgive him, but he realized that that was asking a hell of a lot under the circumstances. He would not speak about the glorious dead because he didn't see much glory in getting killed if you were in your late teens or early 20s. He promised that if in the future he ran into anybody, especially old men who thought death in battle was glorious, he would straighten them out. He said he thought that was the least he could do. Joining us is Lucian Truscott IV, a journalist, screenwriter and author of five best-selling novels. A graduate of West Point, he has covered the wars in Lebanon, Iraq and Afghanistan and is a regular columnist for Salon and writes a daily column at luciantruscott.substack.com where his latest article is, On this and every Memorial Day, my family and I remember Grandpa. Then, with a deal over the debt ceiling protecting defence spending while cutting non-defence discretionary spending, we will speak with Julia Gledhill, an analyst in the Centre for Defence Information at the Project on Government Oversight. She works to hold the Department of Defence accountable for waste, corruption and abuse of power and advocates for more effective national security policy at a lower cost. We will discuss her latest article at the Project on Government Oversight, Defence Industry Crying Wolf on its finances that shows how defence contractors are gouging the taxpayer while rewarding their shareholders at the expense of investing in R&D. Then finally we'll look into whether cybersecurity is an unsolvable problem since perfect cybersecurity is impossible because the very principles that make hacking possible are the ones that make general computing possible. Joining us is Scott Shapiro, a professor of law and philosophy at Yale Law School and the director of the Yale Center for Law and Philosophy and its cybersecurity lab. He's also the author of Legality and the co-author with Una Hathaway of The Internationalists, How a Radical Plan to Outlaw War Remade the World. His latest book just out is Fancy Bear Goes Fishing, The Dark History of the Information Age in Five Extraordinary Hacks. And before we begin, I would like to thank our sustaining listeners whose continued and growing support for background briefing enable us to remain independent without corporate underwriting, commercials, paywalls, or constant fundraising as we deliver a daily news analysis by seeking out the most knowledgeable experts closest to the scene to explore three or more major stories and issues in depth with our sound bites and spin. As a dangerous and devious serial liar and selfish sociopath continues to haunt our politics and poison our social discourse, whose angry and armed followers assault our democracy and attempt to impose a tyranny of the minority in lockstep with their fraudulent wannabe mob boss and Fuhrer, your monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our tax-deductible non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation at publictruthmedia.org contribute to an informed citizenry needed to protect and defend the will of the majority as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And on this Memorial Day, we're joined by Lucian Truscott IV, a journalist, screenwriter, and author of five best-selling novels, a graduate of West Point. He has covered the wars in Lebanon, Iraq, and Afghanistan, and is a regular columnist for Salon. And he has an article at his substack, luciantruscott.substack.com. On this and every Memorial Day, my family and I remember Grandpa. Welcome to Background Briefing, Lucian Truscott. I'm glad to be back. Well, thanks for joining us, Lucian. And uh, in remembering your grandfather, we're talking about Lieutenant General Lucian Truscott, Jr., who had led the U.S. Sixth Army Corps through some of the 
worst to fighting in Italy. And then at the time uh, when he delivered a Memorial Day speech in 1945, he commanded the Fifth Army. And although there are very few fragments of the speech left uh, from the Stars and Stripes, what he said was that all the world over, our soldiers sleep beneath the crosses. Uh, it is a challenge to us, all allied nations, to ensure they do not and have not died in vain. And he, apparently he addressed the graves of uh, some, what, 20,000 soldiers uh, rather than uh, the, the uh, people, uh, the VIPs in front of him. But your piece is so moving because you said that, you know, your grandpa was a, you knew him, you grew up in his uh, farm in northern Virginia, and you don't recall your grandpa smiling very much, and you felt that he, the wars had left him a broken man. But you do recall that when your father was about to be deployed to the Korean War, they spoke after supper on the fence beside the farmhouse that uh, your grandfather had bought for his retirement, and your father asked your grandpa what advice you could give him before he went to war. And your father told you that it was the only time in his life that he saw his father cry. And your father said to you that grandpa began sobbing so hard that he had to lean with his arms over the fence in order to remain standing. And every Memorial Day, I remember his words to my father that night, the bodies, the bodies, all those dead boys the bodies. So here we are on Memorial Day and we're remembering all those who sacrificed, but uh, we've just had a congressional showdown over the debt ceiling and who won? The Pentagon contractors. They get all the money they want and uh, the rest of uh, the discretional Spending on important things and human needs gets short-shrifted. So have we lost sight of my old old friend, uh, Colonel David Hackworth, used to, who was America's most decorated soldier, used to refer to it, that the Pentagon is all about the toys, not the boys. So are we losing sight of the boys and the girls as opposed to spending money on the toys? Well, you know, a large measure of the Pentagon's budget goes to, to what they call the manpower part of the budget. And um, so, I and, you know, soldiers have gotten raises. And I, and I think last year they got a, a significant raise. And I don't think they're losing sight of it. But what you're talking about is the part of the budget that goes to you know, like another aircraft carrier that we learned this week that they held a war game and found out that China could shoot um, the Seventh Fleet out of the water in the first 20 minutes of an engagement um, in the Pacific because of these new hypersonic anti-ship missiles they have. Um, you know, I, you know, I agree with Hackworth. I knew Hackworth. I, I was on. Um, TV with him, I don't know how many times, 20 times, um, talking about, a lot of the time, talking about women in the military and gays in the military. And over the um, time that we spent doing shows on TV, I think I kind of changed Heckler's mind about those subjects. He started out fairly more conservative than I would have liked him to be. But, um, you know, the thing that amazes me about uh, any of this stuff is that when it comes to taxpayer dollars, um, the Republican Party and and conservative uh, people in general are really, really, really good at, at either wasting the money or spend or or stealing it. There was a front page story in the Times this week about um, this incredible scandal over the uh, one of the programs that, that was uh, put in uh, by Biden. Um, you know, after you know, at the end, at, after COVID, to you know, to 
supply people and businesses with money to pay their payrolls and everything. And a whole bunch of people are are just raping that fund uh, with phony submissions of bills for companies that don't exist and payrolls that don't exist. And, you know, just between you and me, I can guarantee you that there aren't a bunch of liberals sitting out there coming up with ways to commit fraud against uh, those funds that were set up to help people um, who were uh, hurt economically from during the COVID lockdowns and everything. Um, uh, you know, uh, look at what Steve Bannon did when he, um, uh, you know, set up his phony fund to build a wall and then pocketed the money. I mean, these guys are, are experts at that. And I have to say, that the defense contractors are the same way. I mean, they, you know, they overcharge on these things, on, on the stuff that they build. Um, and then, incredibly, um, some contractors, some defense contractors have been guilty over the years of providing shoddy merchandise, so to speak. I remember there was a famous case after World War II about a shipbuilder that used a lower quality steel to build the ships he was building for the Navy. So he would save money. I mean, can you believe that? It just, you know, they make enough money anyway that all those contracts are cost plus contracts that, you know, build in a, uh, a guaranteed profit to the defense contractors. They don't have, they don't bid on these things. And then they have to stay within a budget to to build a to make a, a rifle or a pistol or a or a jet or a tank. They they can make the rifle, pistol, jet, and a tank, and they're going to get profit no matter what. So you really wonder why these people um, also uh, commit graft and that sort of thing in these contracts. And it's just you know it's it, it it's scandalous. I mean it's just. Uh, you know, and then the Pentagon itself is constantly on the lookout for the new, you know, as Hackworth called called it, not boys but toys, for the for the latest newest toy that's gonna, um, you know, that they can build for the for the military, and um, I, I don't know, I you know, I, I've been I've been watching this for I figured it out the other day. Uh, 55 years I've been a writer and I've been writing about this kind of stuff for 55 years and when I was in the army I was I was on a test project for a a piece of gym crackery um, that the army went ahead and bought that absolutely didn't work it was a it was called a land navigation device and it was an early version of, of what you'd call it, you know, what they now have of GPS to track yourself on a map as you're, as you're driving in a vehicle. And um, the thing didn't work. It was analog and it, it used a, um, for, for small vehicles like Jeeps, it used a, you know, a magnetic sensor and for tanks and so forth, it used a gyros- gyro- gyroscope to, um, uh, detect movement of the vehicle and all that, and then they use the the turning of the wheels or the tracks to measure distance. And the thing was a piece of crap, and um, and it broke down constantly. And and they bought it, of course, you know, and and sent it to Vietnam, where they installed it on jeeps and tanks, and nobody and nobody ever turned it on because it didn't work. Um, you know, I I was. <laughs> I was doing that while I was in the army. I mean, I learned and saw right up front and close how that system worked. They actually had mechanics for the, from the contractors for that device on site in Fort Carson, Colorado, and, and traveling around with mechanized infantry battalions to fix the thing while, while they were testing it, and it still it didn't work. And of course, you know, those mechanics couldn't go to Vietnam with it. You know, uh, they just sent the device to, to Vietnam. But, um, you know, I, I, I don't know. It's, uh, you know, this has been going on 
for as long as there's been a Defense Department, I guess, there were probably contractors for muskets that right. used shoddy material for the stocks. I don't know. You know. Well, there was, uh, of course, during the Civil War, there were many, many cases of contractors selling tainted meat to the Union Army. Yeah, sure. I mean, yeah. you, you know, you hear these stories and you can't believe them, you know, because you think to yourself, if I owned a company and I was going to make steel, let's say, for, for tanks or for naval vessels, would I shortchange the, the soldiers or sailors on the steel that I'm used to make the to to make the machinery. I mean, you, uh, who are these people? And and I can guarantee you that the guy that made that steel for the naval vessel in World War II was a was a patriot. Was a patriot. You know, oh boy, I'm all for America and I'm a patriot and I support our military and I'm going to wave the flag and all that stuff. And look what the guy did. You know. And, and I'm sure there are dozens of examples of the same sort of thing going on, you know, in the contracts that are being written and 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 built for, you know, today's uh, military. So let's go back, uh, Lucian Truscott, to your uh, Substack piece uh, on this and every Memorial Day. My family and I remember Grandpa, your grandfather, Lieutenant General Lucian Truscott Jr. Who ended up essentially the commander in Europe, wasn't he? Wasn't he the first Sakir? No, he was. He commanded the Third Infantry Division, the Sixth Corps, the Seventh Army, and the Fifth Army. And after the war, he commanded the Third Army. Mm-hmm. But um, he he commanded um, over a million men in combat right. uh, during the war. So um, you know, it's. Uh, um, well, I you remember know, he when was he was a great commander. He was a great general, and uh, and he, um, you know, he was the he was the general that that took Rome for crying out loud. Right. You know, there was a there was a famous picture in Life magazine of uh, Mark Clark, my my grandfather's immediate superior, and and my grandfather and and Mark Clark's aide riding in a jeep up to the steps of the Vatican where the Pope was waiting for them um, when they, on the day that they uh, marched into a drove into Rome. Um, you know, so it's, uh, you know, he's, uh, he's somebody to, you know, to remember. They teach, when I was at West Point, they taught um, um, a month of him and his tactics in the military history course. So, mm-hmm. Well, I recall that when, uh, back in, uh, I think it was 1947 or 49, I'm not sure, when the CIA was formed, uh, he was asked about that, and he was very skeptical of uh, the role of intelligence in the military and basically said, well, as long as they can give me a 24-hour heads up on the enemy's order of battle, but otherwise I don't have much use for them. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, he was a character. You know, he... um you know, he Bill Malden described him in another book that he wrote uh, called Upfront as the kind of guy that would, uh, the kind of man who would take George Patton's pearl handled pistols and use them to pick his teeth with. But, um, well, let's talk know, a little he, about about Patton. You mentioned in your in your Subtech article that after several anti-Semitic outbursts by General Patton, the Dwight Eisenhower appointed your father to command uh, the Third Army and appointed, appointed him a military governor of Bavaria and put him in charge of all the displaced uh, persons camps. And a lot of the Jewish survivors of the Holocaust were living in conditions that are not much better than those under the Nazis. And your father made sure that that was fixed. So t- talk a little bit about that in the last couple of minutes. Well, um, Patton was a notorious anti-Semite. And some reporters from the United States were sent to Germany after the war to um, uh, have a look at what was happening to former prisoners of war, you know, American soldiers who had been prisoners of war and how they were being handled. And then how the people in the displaced persons camps were, were getting along. And that that included uh, about 250,000 Jews who survived the Holocaust. 
who were in the DP camps down there in Bavaria. And Patton um, called, I think he referred to Jews as animals in a quote to a, uh, a Baltimore paper and made similar remarks to other papers. And Eisenhower um, got yelled at by by a congressman who had who had traveled over to Germany and had, and had seen what Patton was doing with the with the um, Jewish Holocaust survivors in the DP camps. And, and so Eisenhower called my grandfather and ordered him down to Bavaria to relieve Patton. And he relieved him of the third infantry of the third army. And, and then grandpa made sure that the Jews were moved out of these, they were being held in, in barbed wire fenced camps. And he moved them into uh, a whole bunch of German army posts that, um, had been seized by after the war because Bavaria wasn't wasn't bombed during the war, so the German army posts and so forth still existed and they were still standing and and um, he moved the Jewish survivors in there and then um, you know they didn't have adequate blankets you know they weren't getting fed properly he and he he changed all of that and um, and then he had. Uh, uh, a bunch of rabbis shipped over from the United States to uh, to do services for the Jewish survivors, and I didn't put it in the subsect piece, but um, he used the presses of that were used to print Mein Kampf to print the survivors Haggadah that he uh, that he had printed for the first Seder that was held in Germany since uh, before the war, and in, in, in over a decade. He ordered that a Seder be held in Munich uh, for the Jewish survivors of the Holocaust. And, and there, were so, there were so many of them that wanted to attend. The Seder went on for three days, and he seized the German beer hall where Hitler had held his first rally in, I think, 1928 or something like that, and used that beer hall as a tabernacle. Uh, to hold the Seder, because, of course, all the tabernacles in Europe had been destroyed by the Nazis. There were no oh, synagogues left. So he used Hitler's beer hall as the tabernacle for this for, for the Seder in 1946. Um, you know, Grandpa was an amazing guy. He was born into relative poverty in Texas and grew up in Oklahoma. And... Um, but he had this incredible empathy for people, and, and uh, he was the the one uh, army commander in World War II in, in Italy when he commanded the Fifth Army. That um, he he put together two all black regiments in the 92nd Infantry Division because he felt so strongly that um, that we couldn't uh, draft black men into the army and then not teach them how to fight and give them rifles. And but I don't know whether you know it or not, but black soldiers in World War II were used as cooks and clerks and drivers and that sort of thing. And they didn't go through basic training and learn how to shoot rifles when they were sent to Germany. And Grandpa had to hold a small basic training camp in Italy, north of Rome, to train in two weeks these black soldiers how to sh- on how to shoot rifles and and basic tactics so that they could become combat soldiers in the 92nd Infantry Division. Um, I mean, he, you know, he he did that. And, and, that was, and he did it against the wishes of both Eisenhower and Bradley, who were his superiors, who told him not to do it, but he did it. And then he was the only general officer after World War II in 1947 or 1948, when Truman integrated the military to support Truman's order. Both Eisenhower and Patton testified against Truman's executive order integrating the military in 1948 before a Senate committee. Wow. So well, I, uh, I'm lucky to have been born into the family I was born into. Absolutely. And I'm proud that I, that I have this, this legacy um, mm. to live up to. And... Um, and I tried to do that today in the uh, Substack article that I that I wrote and posted, which you so kindly promoted. Thank you. Well, thank you for joining us on this Memorial Day, Lucy and Truscott. I appreciate it. Okay. 
And again, I've been speaking with Lucian Truscott, who's a journalist, screenwriter, and author of five best-selling novels, a graduate of West Point. He has covered the wars in Lebanon, Iraq, and Afghanistan, and is a regular columnist for Salon. He has a daily column at lucianstruscott.substack.com, where his latest article is on this and every Memorial Day, my family and I remember Grandpa. We're going to take a brief station break, and with the deal over the debt ceiling protecting defence spending while cutting non-defence discretionary spending... We will discuss how defence contractors are gouging the taxpayer while rewarding their shareholders at the expense of investing in R&D. Then the mother's old hands began to tremble And she fought against tears in her eyes But they came unashamed for there was no name And she knew that her soldier had died Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Julia Gledhill, who's an analyst at the Center for Defense Information at the Project on Government Oversight. She works to hold the Department of Defense accountable for waste, corruption, and abuse of power. And on Capitol Hill, Julia advocates for more effective national security policy at a lower cost. Welcome to Background Briefing, Julia Gledhill. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And a week ago on Sunday, 60 Minutes did a fairly lengthy expose on the enormous systemic ripoffs that contractors are able to do in terms of literally stealing the public funds and just naming their own price with the little uh, oversight and no consequences. And this money, this in effect, this stolen money ends up being handed over as a reward to the shareholders of these big defense contractors. Uh, and I think your new study, Defense Industry Clying Wolf on Its Finances, indicated that the shareholders of defense companies' profits and dividends have what gone up something like 72%? Yeah, so contractors have increased cash paid to their shareholders uh, by 73% when you look at um, 2010 to 2019 as compared to the previous decade. Um, and so what I did is I synthesized, you know, an almost 200-page financial study that the DOD did to evaluate the impacts of contract and finance policies on the financial health of the industry. And they found this killer fact, which is that contractors are prioritizing stuffing the pockets of their shareholders at the expense of internal investment. And in terms of the lack of oversight or the inability of the Pentagon to track this money and to deal with the price gouging, what explains that? So one way that price that price gouging happens is um, contractors withhold what's called cost and pricing data. And cost and pricing data is really important because it's the best tool that the Pentagon has to ensure that it's paying fair prices and that it's negotiating fair deals. Um, and so there are a number of loopholes in contracting regulations that allow companies to um, withhold cost and pricing data and sort of you know, move forward with contracting negotiations where the Pentagon is basically blind as to their as to their you know component costs. Um, they can't really ballpark the the profits that contractors are making. Um, but then there are other cases where cost and pricing data is in fact required, and companies just refuse to provide it, and then nothing happens because well, the government needs those contracts, and there are a few companies that can actually carry them out. So. There's a bit of a bonanza going on, isn't there, for defense contractors with the increasing confrontation with China, but the, this ongoing war in Ukraine, which is re requiring enormous amounts of, uh, of ammunition and weaponry. The U.S. keeps setting these red lines that, they, oh, you can't have this weapon, you can't have that, you can't have tanks, you can't have aircraft. And then they, they eventually, months later, they cross their own red lines and start delivering the stuff. But my understanding is a lot of the stuff that uh, the Ukrainians have been getting, you know, has been, <laughs> say, subpar, I guess, recycled equipment, some of which doesn't work. And the latest thing is they're getting the F-16s. Apparently the Ukrainians don't want the F-16s. They, they've already got 
the MiG-29s, which they're more familiar with, all they need is the avionics packages and weapon systems uh, upgrades. But General Dynamics is lobbying hard for the F-16s. So is this what's happening here, that we're just foisting stuff on them because certain companies have the lobbying leverage to uh, get the White House and the Department of Defense to do their bidding? Well, I won't make a statement on what Ukraine does or doesn't need to fight their war. But what I will say is that the industry has an incredible amount of power over Congress, and they do have an interest in um, permanently expanding their production capacity in the short term for Ukraine, but in the long term to secure more government contracts and more funding and more money and more cash paid to their shareholders. And so I think the push around Ukraine contracting at the moment is really significant, as you say, um, because we have these contractors with immense lobbying power pushing lawmakers, um, you know, kind of under the veil of uh, protecting democracy and um, supporting Ukraine and, and uh, you know, preparing for near-peer competition, whether that be with Russia or with China. Um, but in reality, they care about paying their shareholders. Um, and I think that it's it's significant um, in part because some of the contracting push um, is, is really justified by contractors with this argument that small businesses really need this extra money to invest internally. Um, but, but what we see from this DOD study is that, well, um, you know, across the board, the the top ten contractors, as well as the rest of the industry, um, are are not prioritizing that investment in capital assets and in internal research and development. Um, there's another conversation to be had about the way that contractors use small business as justification for more money for whatever reason of the moment. When in fact, there's evidence that shows that prime contractors actually turn around and um, screw over the the underdog when they pocket money intended for small businesses, for example, um, and then offload all of the work. Uh, so, I mean, the, the study actually notes that between 60 and 70 percent of defense work is done by subcontractors, by these smaller businesses. Um, and so I think if we're going to talk about Ukraine contracting and, um, you know, supporting the, the smaller companies in the space and in the industry, you know, uh, that's, I think, asking for more accountability from prime contractors and actually making sure that those small businesses get the financing that the primes do from the government, um, because, you know, the primes are, are often um, uh, kind of a barrier, I think, for, for the smaller businesses. And so that's important to think about and really question and be skeptical about, um, because we do see these contractors using small business as their reason for all these things. And then you got to ask, well, okay, how are you actually supporting your subcontractors? Um, because there's, there's some questionable, questionable, um, evidence out there of, of the small guys getting, um, you know, just just stepped on by the primes um, from whom they rely almost completely. You know, you can't really bite the hand that feeds you. Right. Well, you you studied at uh, the Center for Defense Information at the Project on Government Oversight, Julia Glethill, defense industry crying wolf on its finances. It concludes that the data that you've, you've uncovered indicates that defense companies are more focused on enriching their shareholders than on investing in their businesses to meet national security challenges. And, I mean, the whole point of being on the cutting edge in terms of technology is about R&D, isn't it? Yeah, you know, in part. I mean, that internal research and development is really important for innovation, which is another kind of buzzword we hear when we um, are listening to contractors asking for money. They say, oh, we need more funding so that we can innovate, so that we can increase production capacity, so that we can eat all of our, meet all of our arms transfer uh, obligations, you know, and all these things. Um, and then you look at the last 20 years, it's like, okay, well, y'all didn't really think ahead at, at all. Um, you know, the commercial sector, they have to do this internal investment. They have to innovate in order to stay competitive, in order to stay afloat. But the defense industry, they don't have to do that. Why? Because the government subsidizes all those costs. I mean, the government covers the vast majority of their research and development costs. They even cover capital depreciation for the, for the most part. So if you buy, you know, really expensive um, piece of machinery to make shells or ammunition or whatever it is, um, you know, even the government's gonna gonna reimburse you for those maintenance costs and for um, you know making sure that machinery is is um, 
still still usable. Um, and so it's just insane to sort of look at the financial metrics of these contractors compared to their, you know, similarly sized companies in the commercial sector because they outperform their corporate counterparts in eight out of nine of the sort of main corporate financial metrics, including return on assets, um, in part because, again, the government is covering all of their investment costs and then the companies get to reap the benefits. So what's happening then as a result of the uh, 60 Minutes investigation into the price gouging and the lack of oversight. Uh, I understand a group of uh, bipartisan group of U.S. senators are weighing in. Uh, What do you expect to happen there, Julia? That's right. So we had a bipartisan group of senators send a letter to um, the DOD as well as um, a couple industry executives um, essentially calling for an investigation and for more information around the price gouging revealed by the 60 Minutes investigation um, and and also kind of building on new reporting that shortly followed the 60 Minutes investigation, finding that Boeing um, had actually refused to provide the Pentagon cost and pricing data um, for nearly 11,000 spare parts over the course of about 11 months on a single contract. Um, And so we talked about cost and pricing data a few minutes ago. Again, it's really important because you have to imagine, you know, if you were going to hire someone to work on your house um, and fix your roof, for example, um, you're going to get some quotes. You're going to shop around. You're going to talk to a few contractors. You might even, if you're feeling, um, you know, particularly ambitious, uh, you might even do your own research into like what shingles cost. Right. So if you find the cost of a shingle and then you turn around, you see your contractors charging you three times the price in, in their quote, then you're going to ask some questions. Um, and, and this is why it's so important that, that companies provide the Pentagon this cost and pricing data. And so the fact that Boeing refused to provide it is, is really significant. And, um, you know, uh, Senator Warren and, and several others are, are sort of pressing the DOD to kind of look into this issue and see what price gouging, you know, Uh, likely occurred uh, for that contract, uh, as well as a few others that were included um, in this particular investigation, or particular reporting, rather. But some of these companies, like Boeing and General Dynamics, I've seen their ads on television where they're basically uh, expropriating patriotism. They're basically saying, you know, what we're doing is, is patriotic, and we're providing the weaponry to defend a democracy at home and abroad. You know, I mean, is there any way you can call them over in terms of their promises versus their actions? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that the 60 Minutes investigation um, paired with this new reporting about, you know, Boeing refusing cost and pricing data is kind of... um, creating some momentum around uh, price gouging in Congress. Um, We saw this a couple years ago with Transdime as well, which was a company that um, overcharged the Pentagon to make nearly $21 million in excessive profits. That was in 2021. They had price gouged again for around the tune of, you know, 16 million in 2019. So it's like every few years we have these just incredible examples of companies price gouging going back to the eighties. I mean, we've known that this has been happening for decades um, and so I think that it's, you know, something that because it's resur- resurfaced in the media a few times now, people are getting used to this idea that, you know, military contractors, the defense industry, they, you know, um, they have their own interests and they like to frame it within the um, security context and saying, oh, this is um, this is American power. This is American strength. Um, but they're fleecing the taxpayer and they're getting called out for it more and more. And I think it's going to be harder for them to um, harder for them to ignore that. Well, just in closing, I mean, we're speaking on Memorial Day when we honor the sacrifices of, of the men and women who have died in the many wars. And it's just to me, it's obscene to think that rather than making sacrifices, the defense industry is rewarding itself and rewarding its shareholders. So it's a little yeah. hard to swallow. And and you know what? It's not corporate it's not corporate success or people making money that's the problem. It's it what the problem is that companies prioritize cash paid to shareholders over everything else. Shareholders are going to make money. That's fine. Um, But what this study says is that it came at the direct expense of these internal investments that any other industry has to make. But because the defense industry is so 
um, supported and subsidized by the government. They don't have to do that. And I think that that's really the core of the issue here. It's fleecing the taxpayer um, under the guise of American strength and security. And that's truly offensive to me personally, and I think um, offensive to you know all the people who do put in all of this work, because at the end of the day, um, it means that they aren't actually getting war fighters what they need, right? Because they're, they're providing less for more money. Um, and that's, that's completely indefensible. Well, Julia Gledhill, I thank you so much for joining us on this Memorial Day. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And again, I've been speaking with Julia Gledhill, who's an analyst at the Center for Defense Information at the Project on Government Oversight. She works to hold the Department of Defense accountable for waste, corruption, and abuse of power. And on Capitol Hill, Julia advocates for more effective national security policy at a lower cost. We can take a brief station break. We're back looking into whether or not cybersecurity is an unsolvable problem and speak with the author of the new book just out, Fancy Bear Goes Fishing, The Dark History of the Information Age in Five Extraordinary Hacks. He fastened all the triggers for the others to fire. And then you sat back and watched when the death count gets higher You hide in your mansion While the young people's blood Flows out of their bodies and is buried in the mud Welcome back, I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Scott Shapiro, who's a professor of law and philosophy at Yale Law School and the director of the Yale Center for Law and Philosophy and its cybersecurity lab. He is the author of Legality and the co-author with Una Hathaway of The Internationalists, How a Radical Plan to Outlaw War Remade the World. And his latest book just out is Fancy Bear Goes Fishing, The Dark History of the of the information age in five extraordinary hacks. Welcome to Background Briefing, Scott Shapiro. Thank you so much, Ian, for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And obviously, cyber warfare and hacking have been uh, weaponized, particularly uh, by China, who hacked into the Office of Personnel Management and got all of the resumes of all of the government employees, in particular those in the intelligence services, we know that Russia, of course, has been active, and the title of your book indicates that with uh, Fancy Bear Goes Fishing. And North Korea makes most of its money, from what I can tell, from crypto scams. And now you have you know, a sense in Russia that maybe there's a kind of Game of Thrones going on behind the scenes to replace Putin as this war in Ukraine goes badly for them. And you've got Prigozhin, the head of this mercenary outfit, saying that Russia should turn into North Korea. Uh, so I imagine with all of Russia's uh, malignant, uh, malign potential, if they turned into North Korea, the problems that you raise in the book would be a, a hundred times, thousand times worse, would they not? Um, uh, yes, yes and no. So let me um, first uh, begin by saying that... Um, you're absolutely right, of course. Nation states have been hacking um, each other and uh, the Western world, uh, the United States, uh, uh, Western Europe, um, for, for a long time, um, North Korea, Iran, Russia, China. But I, I just want to just state at the outset that, that, that they're hacking for very different reasons. So um, the Chinese primarily hack for the purposes of espionage, that is to collect information. They rarely try to disrupt um, our uh, kind of what are often called cyber kinetic systems, cyber physical systems, and they're not going after our grid. They're not going after water stations. Um, Russia does, in fact, um, engage in more than just espionage. They do disrupt um, the internal affairs of, uh, let's say, the United States in 2016 when Fancy Bear, um, uh, which is a, a lead Russian intelligence unit, um, hacked the Democratic National Committee and then um, dumped uh, all the information um, onto the Internet, and that caused a big uh, problem and North Korea, as you point out, does engage in a lot of cyber crime. So you have, on the one hand, espionage, 
what we would maybe consider cyber war, and then the third thing being cyber crime. So they're all engaging in this for very different reasons. With respect to Russia, uh, Russia has been targeting the United States in terms of spying for forever. We have been trying to hack uh, Russia forever as well. That's just what nation states do. What Russia has been doing, though, in the last um, bunch of years, um, since 2016, is trying to meddle in the internal affairs of different states. And that really is a very scary and problematic activity that they're engaged in. I would just point out that lots of times Russia engages in hacking, not in order to really achieve fundamental military ends, because it's very hard to achieve military ends with cyber weapons, but what they're trying to do in, 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 in many of these cases is to harass and to irritate um, and just to, um, in a sense, be a nuisance. But I, I, I wouldn't be so worried that Russia was going to try to take down our, the Internet in the United States, because if they were to do that, then the, the, then the that would escalate the conflict between countries um, to such a great extent that I doubt that they would want to take that risk. But Putin's biggest play, or his most effective play now, because he's losing on the battlefield and perhaps is about to lose even more on the battlefield, is to influence the United States Congress to cut funds to Ukraine and hopefully bring back Donald Trump who clearly uh, is in Putin's pocket. So to that extent, is this is an influence campaign, right, more than anything else, as it was with Fancy Bear, because that happened literally when, uh, just before the elections, uh, the Access Hollywood tape came out, and instantly the Russians, the GRU, got the data to uh, Julian Assange, who dumped it, to take that story off the headlines. Did it? That's how it happened, right? And that's why it happened. No, I, you know, absolutely. Um, you, you're, you're absolutely correct. The, the, uh, the function of, um, of what Fancy Bear did um, when they hacked the DNC is that they then leaked it to Julian Assange, who then posted it on WikiLeaks for everyone to see. And it was designed to throw off bad news that Donald Trump was getting. There was clear, I mean, clearly an influence campaign on, on the part of Putin to push the electorate towards um, Donald Trump. I would just say that, you know, at that time, almost nobody thought that Donald Trump was going to win. And so what Russia was trying to do, Putin was trying to do, was really trying to bloody Hillary. Again, this is a, a, what, what, what I had said earlier, which is that a lot of these influence campaigns and a lot of the, this hacking activity is really designed to um, harass and to irritate, but not really to fundamentally change things. In this case, it might have actually pushed the election in one direction. And, and you're right, the influence campaign is continuing, but notice that the influence campaign is continuing not through um, hacking anymore. It's just that now the United States is riven um, uh, between the Democrats and the Republicans about whether they want to uh, support Ukraine against Russia. And now what has was an international conflict has become a domestic conflict because of uh, Donald Trump's um, uh, uh, either... Uh, predilection or some other reason that he is so uh, admiring and supportive of Vladimir Putin. So let's broaden the conversation out, uh, Scott Shapiro, to the fundamental questions that your your new book brings up, and that is that perfect cybersecurity is impossible because the very principle that makes hacking possible are the ones that make general computing possible. Yes. Uh, Yes, absolutely. One of the things, I mean, my book tells a lot of stories of computer intrusions and and bad things that happen from uh, because the Internet is insecure and hackers exploit it all the time. And our newspapers are just filled with stories day after day of some type of data breach 
or another. So one of the thoughts is, well, why don't we fix it? Why don't we just invest money and just get the technology right? And one of the things I wanted to show in the book is that that's actually theoretically impossible. It is impossible to achieve perfect cybersecurity. And the reason is because the very principles that hackers exploit to break into computer systems are the very um, principles that computers need in order to operate. So just give a very quick example. The reason why we don't have to rebuild computers every single time we want to run a new application is because we can always download new code into our computers or load it from some storage device. And that is because code and data can both be represented by binary symbols, by sequences of ones and zeros. Now, what happens is this incredible flexibility that we're, we're able to exploit with our modern, in the modern world, that is that we can download software whenever we want it and run it, is the very kind of um, flexibility that hackers exploit. So one of the things that they'll do is that you're expecting good code, they'll send bad code. You're expecting good, you're expecting data in order to run it on the code that you've already downloaded, and then they'll send um, malicious code. So the very principles that make computers possible make hacking possible, and there's no way to get rid of it. There's only ways to make it better. So tell us about the relationship between data and code and the significance of uh, uh, Alan Turing's discovery in 1936. Yeah, so, so uh, the movie The Imitation Game um, story about um, uh, Alan Turing, a brilliant uh, British mathematician who cracks the Enigma code. But, er, but the first thing he does, his major thing he does is he's 24 years old. He writes this article which shows um, this amazing feature um, that the world had never seen before, which is that it was possible, he showed mathematically, it was possible to build a mechanical computing device. And that he, he showed how you can build a computing device like out of wires and, and, and motors and things like that, which many people thought might be impossible. And that he also, and he showed that it's not only possible to build a computing device that can solve one problem, but you could build a device that could solve any solvable problem. And that's the general computers that we have. That is, our laptops don't just run, you know, spreadsheets or browsers, but they run any kind of code. And they can run any kind of code because, as Turing showed, that data, which is normally represented through um, numbers, like it's 80 degrees outside, code, which is normally not represented by numbers, normally represented by words, like English words, like add or shut the door. It was possible to take those English words that code is couched in and convert them into numbers too. And so that code and data could be represented by numbers and since all numbers can be represented by binary symbols, symbols of ones and zeros, it turns out that everything we'd ever want to put on our computers could be represented by strings of ones and zeros. And that is why the world, the magical world of, of the Internet that we live in is possible because we can um, uh, send code and data to our computers for them to um, calculate. It just so happens, though, that hackers can take this, this flexibility that code and data can be represented by the same symbols. And when the computer's expecting good code or when the computer's expecting good data, you send it malicious code in the form of binary symbols and you can trick your computer into executing it. I, what I try to do is show how this, this basic principle shows up in so many different hacks that you might have been confused before, but once you understand this very basic thing about code and data that Turing discovered, the world of hacking becomes much more um, uh, understandable and, and, I dare say, fun. And in your new book, uh, Scott Shapiro, Fancy Bear goes fishing the dark history of the information age in five extraordinary hacks. The five hacks are uh, the Morris Worm and then the Bulgarian hacker known as Dark Avenger, whose identity is still unknown, Cameron Lacroix, the 16-year-old 
from South Boston who hacked into Paris Hilton and Paris Yar, a Rutgers student who designed the Murray botneck, and was uh, in 2016 he hacked into Minecraft. So I guess the point here and what's fascinating and puzzling here is that you argue that it's a human problem that requires an understanding of human behavior. So are you saying it's not a technical problem, it's, it's a human problem? Yes, that's what I'm saying. So obviously, you know, at some point it becomes a technical problem in the sense that you got to fix the thing um, that, that's broken. But if you look at, if you look at it in, in a, in a, from, a, from a wider lens, you see that actually the code was not found in nature. Human beings built it. And they built it because they are following a bunch of rules, norms, they have values, they have desires, and they have certain kinds of incentives that the law gives them, that their employer gives them, that their parents gave them, that their friends give them. And so what I argue in the book is that instead of trying to fix the technical problems that we find ourselves with, we should spend a lot more time focusing on all the rules and all the norms and all the incentives that we give people to to build bad software that has bugs in them. And then the other incentives that we give people to exploit those bugs. If we were to close those loopholes, if we were to give, let's say, software companies reasons to build actually good software, we wouldn't have to spend all this time fixing the bad software because the good software would be created in the first place. So the store, the book explains a lot of technical stuff about how hacking happens, but all, I always try to embed it in stories about human beings because they're the ones who are building this stuff and exploiting this stuff. And if we can understand why they're doing that, maybe we can actually um, slow it down. Um, we'll never stop it because cybercrime is now just crime, so you can't stop crime. But you can definitely make us safer and catch the bad people more often than we're doing than right now. But you also point out that you taught at Tel Aviv University in Israel and that the NSO group that developed the Pegasus, which is, was used for, for very malign purposes, particularly targeting political dissidents and journalists, in many ways in Israel people are proud of NSO. So. One of the things you just mentioned is the possibility of sanctioning tech companies for not writing good software. Is that feasible? Yes. Yeah, so um, uh, uh, President Biden's national cybersecurity strategy just came out with uh, endorsing this idea of imposing software liability on developers for writing in, uh, negligently insecure code. I mean, what, what's incredible is that software may be the only one of the very few products that um, that we buy and that we use, in fact, that's taken over the world, there is no liability for building bad code negligently or not testing it. It's, it's really quite um, um, shocking, and that, that really um, needs to change. So that's a legal change that I would suggest, I propose, and it's, um, it, it's picking up steam. But I also think that it's incumbent on parents and educators, teachers like myself to tell people to, to make the point that hacking um, people without their permission is wrong and that hacking human rights activists or journalists is extremely wrong um, and that companies that um, build these tools and license them to human rights abusing states um, ought to be condemned in the in the strongest um, in the strongest um, form possible. And that I did when I was teaching um, in Israel, I said multiple times, you know, what NSO is doing is morally outrageous. And the more people that say this, I think the better. Especially teachers speaking to their students, they ought to. They ought to point out what is right and what is wrong, um, and um, 
uh, what NSO did um, and uh, they just continue to doing with, with the Pegasus spyware um, should be stopped. The United States has, the Biden administration has taken a very strong stance against NSO, put them on the entities list, their sanctions on NSO, and hopefully companies will take, um, will take note that, um, that uh, you know, certain countries will not tolerate this anymore. And I, th- and I hope teachers and um, uh, leaders uh, stand up and say, no, actually hacking human rights abusers, uh, human rights um, activists or journalists or, or politicians, this is a very bad thing to do. So just in the last minute, Scott, is it possible to do something about the anonymity uh, on the internet where people don't have to reveal who they are and they hide behind uh, handles and uh, therefore uh, have less responsibility for what they do? Well, I, I think there's no question that the reason why so much behavior on the internet is um, is rude, um, is abusive, um, uh, maybe criminal um, in, in in some cases is because we because anonymity uh, affords us the opportunity to say things without consequence. Mike Tyson famously said that um, you know kids nowadays are growing up um, uh, knowing that they can say things without getting punched in the nose. Um, and I, I'm not arguing that we should punch people. Uh, what I'm trying to say is that anonymity definitely increases um, the willingness on the part of people to impose costs because they don't see the consequences of their actions. This certainly happens in the case of hacking. You don't see all the information that you just destroyed. That having been said, security is not everything. Privacy is also important. And I think it's really important that people be able to um, not identify themselves on the internet so that they can speak their minds. Yes, that there is um, some abusive language that happens, but um, people have reasons to speak truth to power um, on the internet as well without revealing their identity for fear of repercussions. And I would want to protect that as well. So security is not everything. Privacy is important to us too. And the the uh, I think the ultimate goal of the 21st century is to figure out how we balance security and privacy. Well, Scott Shapiro, thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you so much, Ian. This was a really fun and wonderful conversation. Thank you for having me. And thank you again, Scott Shapiro. And we've been speaking with Scott Shapiro, who's a professor of law and philosophy at Yale Law School and the director of the Yale Center for Law and Philosophy and its Cybersecurity Lab. He's also the author of Legality and the co-author with Una Hathaway of The Internationalists, How a Radical Plan to Outlaw War Remade the World. And his latest book just out is Fancy Bear Goes Fishing, The Dark History of the Information Age in Five Extraordinary Hacks. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green. To help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.